So welcome, everybody. We are not yet ready to start our new season of The Francis Effect, but we're here because everything has hit the wall this week. And so we figured we would record a quick kind of reaction episode to the events of the Capitol being stormed and COVID still raging and the unclear path between here and the inauguration happening in a couple of weeks. And so I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran, and this is a bonus episode of The Francis Effect. Welcome, Heidi and Dan. Good to be here in 2021. David, Heidi, good to be with you as always. So... I will just say that I feel numb. I have looked at the events of the last 36 hours, the storming of the Capitol by an angry mob of armed citizens and breaking in and doing damage and breaching security protocols. And I was saying to my wife, Kira, that the the night after that happened, that I felt the same way that I did on 9-11. I had this mixture of nothing is normal, and yet the world is still here, and I'm watching people react in various ways. And so I've had a lot of emotions the last couple of days. I'm wondering how you two are doing. Well, I guess I could say as somebody who had to step up and start working on it right away, NCR's national correspondent put together a reaction piece that afternoon we had an opinion piece the next morning and by the next afternoon had a, a editorial. I got to tell you, I was shocked, but not surprised. So anybody who said they were surprised hasn't been paying attention to all the stirring up that's been going on, not just the last two months, but the last four years. That said, very, very sad, lots of emotions of sadness. But then Quickly also wanting to make sure that it didn't get spun or forgotten as I stayed up as late as I could to watch the uh, Senate and House come back together and try to finish the voting. I had a quick reaction to people who were wanting to very quickly put this behind us. And I think it's very important that we continue to pay attention to it. Yeah, I agree. I stayed up and watched the Senate's reconvening of the certification of the Electoral College and was both impressed and horrified by some of the speeches. Of course, Josh Hawley, who has effectively disgraced himself, even among his Republican colleagues, both the the St. Louis newspaper and the Kansas City, Missouri newspaper, two of the largest papers in Missouri, the state in which Hawley comes from as a senator, have disavowed him and called for his resignation. Ted Cruz, who is, I'm going to editorialize here directly, is despicable and barely won his reelection when Beto O'Rourke challenged it a few years back in the 2018 election, came very close to winning Texas. The events, so I watched that. I, I couldn't stay up and wouldn't stay up to watch the House. And as the reporting showed the next day, the House was just a circus as predicted. And the 138 or so GOP representatives who continued to persist with their lies and continue to throw fuel on the fire of insurrection and violence and, frankly, treason. What they're arguing for is the overthrow of of a validly elected politician in federal government. It's completely insane. I agree with you, David. I felt, I said this to a friend, I felt like I felt on 9-11. And I was terribly shocked by that. That's what I was shocked by. I agree with you, Heidi, and this description I would use. I wasn't surprised, as many commentators have already pointed out. This was inevitable in a way. This was what did we expect would happen? And yet the visceral response, there was something about seeing those. I'm getting chills right now, even as I'm thinking about it, seeing the security detail in the House and the Senate sergeants at arms escorting the 
United States legislature and whisking away the vice president of the United States out of the chambers of our government as domestic terrorists break into it, one of the most secure places, ostensibly one of the most secure places in the country, was disturbing on a level I was even shocked by. I have more thoughts about this, but yeah, David, what, what do you... <laughs> I want to add, because it's been said a couple times in the conversation, anyone who was paying attention would have expected this. And I want to emphasize that my shock, my feeling like 9-11, my overwhelm, that's not a matter of not expecting this. Let me put some more sort of clarification into that. I fully expected there to be a violent insurgent mob in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. I fully expected that there would be bloodshed, and I fully expected that it would be out of hand and that property would be destroyed. What I did not expect given everything that I thought that I knew about the United States with regard to its, let's call it its holy properties, okay, like the Washington Monument or the White House or the Capitol Building, I would have thought that given all of the armed and very violent resistance to peaceful marching that we saw over the last 10 months, where people who were literally just saying stop killing us were getting beaten down, tear gassed, and met with thick resistance from all of these different police forces, there is no way in the world I would have imagined that the mob would have been able to even get to the steps of the Capitol, let alone break the doors and the windows of the Capitol and get in. I would have thought that they would have had a plan in place for anytime anybody was trying to attack the Capitol, and that plan would have been executed. What we saw instead was either the lack of a plan entirely, which I can't imagine how that happened, or we saw the unwillingness to execute a plan that had been in place. And that's what really was shocking. Yeah. I So I my brain has been reeling for the last uh, 48 hours thinking the same thing. And I think it's probably a combination of many things is my suspicion. And I heard a theory just today. We're recording this on Friday afternoon. And one of the members of the New York Times editorial board, Michelle, is it Cottle, was the guest on the argument with Ross Duthat and Michelle Goldberg. And she said something that I thought was very interesting, which is, I have basically that there this may have actually been the lack of the kind of armed national guard and barricades and everything around was an effort again a kind of overcompensation for the harsh measures that took place in in Washington DC in June with the Black Lives Matters protest and Trump's deployment of federal agents on these peaceful crowds and including Mayor Bowser of Washington DC there were folks at the local level who were concerned about the optics, who were concerned about perhaps spin that would seem justifying for these rowdy crowds and terrorists and insurrectionists to deploy all sorts of violence and destruction of property. That is actually interesting. But I also think there are other things. There are videos of Capitol Police who are allowing folks in through gates. There are videos of Capitol Police taking selfies with some of these insurrectionists. That sort of stuff is beyond the pale. So I, I think it's a combination of a lot of things, but you're right, David, there was not appropriate planning or response. And I think one of the last things about this that's so disturbing is the reporting that's come out subsequently that there were calls, including from the leadership of both the Senate and the House to the White House asking Trump to call the National Guard. Because here again, another reason why Washington, D.C. should be a state along with Puerto Rico is that the National Guard in D.C. is under 
under the authority of the federal government, not of the state officials like it is in most states or commonwealths. And he refused. And it turns out Mike Pence got on the horn and which is not the chain of command. And it was thanks to his call and a few other senior um, government officials that the National Guard was deployed. This is very messed up and it's going to take months to unpack. Yeah, clearly, Dan, there's so much complicity here in terms of what happened beforehand or didn't happen and what happened as things unfolded. What we were pointing out at NCR is that there is Catholic complicity here too. So clearly, President Trump and the many Republicans who for years have been propping him up. The idea that people would resign at this point with 12 days left in the administration is ridiculous to me. That's the most serious complicity. But in our church, the apologists for Trump throughout the his four years, they have blood on their hands too. And we're looking at four or five people now who are dead as a result of that that day. We did an editorial in which we came right out and said that. And I'm happy to see that there are some other publications that are saying that too. We got specific. We named people. Cardinal Dolan, CatholicVote.org, rogue pro-lifer Abby Johnson, and much of the pro-life movement. People decided that they would trade possible policy objectives, whether it's Supreme Court justices or aid for Catholic schools or whatever it might be, and attach themselves to somebody who everybody knew all along was unstable and dangerous and undermining our democracy. And they said it's a risk we're willing to take. And now in the aftermath, some of them are walking back a little bit, but some are jumping into the craziness, trying to blame it on the left or Antifa or something like that. And we need to continue to call these people to account. What I hope we can see is a move now away from these politics or the way of doing things in the past, this willingness. And we call for some specific things. U.S. bishops, get rid of that ad hoc committee on Biden. We need to work with Biden moving forward. The pro-life movement, we need to really rethink the Catholic Church's involvement with extremists in the pro-life movement. We need to stop single-issue politicking altogether. So I hope this is the beginning of something new and different, but we need to be clear in naming our church's complicity. Heidi, let me follow up on that. Earlier this week, evangelical leader Albert Moeller went on record saying that he, knowing what he knows now, he would be hesitant to vote for Trump and support Trump. But then he said something curious. He said, given what he knew on November 3rd when he cast his vote, he still would have cast his vote for Trump. In other words, he's saying, I, I have some hindsight where this new information has let me know that this was a bad decision, but I would definitely be there for that decision given the, the information that I had at that time. Are you seeing similar things from the bishops saying, now we're hesitant about this, or are they still doubling down saying, no, Trump is our guy. Well, a number of bishops have been quiet lately. Including Um, the Archbishop, Cardinal Archbishop of New York. Yes. And Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas has not been as vocal as he normally has been. We have three progressive bishops who spoke to NCR that day in the middle of things. Bishop John Stowe of Lexington came right out and said, you reap what you sow, and this is the result of what has been going on. And Bishop McElroy from San Diego and Cardinal Tobin from Newark both said this is the result of the politics of division. As to whether everyday people even are saying we're rethinking things, 
my first reaction to what you just said, David, is if he didn't know on November 3rd, shame on him because the information was out there. But perhaps this is the result of closing yourself off to only the information that you want to hear in your own private social media feed. And the thing for me that's so upsetting about this in that sort of discourse, which is complete bullshit, is that, and, and this is where I'm, I'm struggling because David, with your acknowledgement of feeling like 9-11 again, I mean, that physical feeling for which you have no sort of intellectual control, it just hits you like a wave, which I also experienced. I also thought when I started to intellectualize what was going on and try to process it, I was aware of the fact like I have felt close to this many times over the last four years. I think about being in Dublin, Ireland when Charlottesville happened. And it's startling enough when you're in your own country and the stuff happens. It's so much more mind blowing to be in another country. And then all of a sudden having to give an account of some of this stuff as an as a representative American and saying, I can't justify this when he talked about good people on both sides. The thing is, Trump poured fuel on the fire, even in his ostensible efforts to encourage these terrorists to leave the Capitol in that one minute video, which began with a repetition of the lies about a stolen election and ended that way. And in between in included him saying things like he loves these people, he understands where they're coming from and so on and so forth. He's incapable of doing the right thing or understanding anything that doesn't have to do with his own reactions. Think about this in terms of People who say this about November 3rd, including bishops, including Catholics, both religious leaders, but also public Catholics, people in public office or activists like Johnson and others, maybe I'm too cynical, but I'm like, what about this? Is it because the largely white legislature, which you thought was off guard, was under threat? that your guy, Mike Pence, now has become an object of derision. This morning in the New York Times on their daily podcast, there, were, there was horrifying auto, audio. I am no fan of Mike Pence. <laughs> no strangers. Anyone who's not a stranger to this podcast will be familiar with that. But I was terrified to hear these mobs inside the United States Capitol chanting, where is Mike Pence, a lynch mob going to get him? And so now, is that what it is? What about all these literal lynchings that have taken place with the killings of unarmed African-Americans in the country. What about the ways that the bishop's incitement, including Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas, and his endorsement of lunatics like Father Altman in Wisconsin, in the kind of very derogatory language that is close to the incitement of violence when it comes to Democrats and the Catholic Church and so forth, this kind of stuff, words function, words matter. And I don't understand that. I, I keep coming back to the obvious, which is the single issue focus of the USCCB. The only thing that those who are in the leadership of the USCCB, not all the bishops of the United States, because this doesn't include all of them, but those in high office among the USCCB only care about abortion and they need to get over it. I'm not saying abortion is okay. I'm not saying abortion is not an important life issue. I'm saying it is not the preeminent life issue. It is not the most important life issue. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that among the many issues that threaten life right now, it is one among the many, but it is not the be-all, end-all, the sine qua non issue. Well, that's exactly right, and that's what the church teaches. What is the qualifier? Any qualifier that's used around abortion, people say, well, it's innocent life, as if human life can be in and of itself and its existence innocent or not innocent. You know what else is innocent life? People on death row. You know what else is innocent life? Migrants who are fleeing, refugees who are seeking safety from political violence and war. 
and environmental degradation. That's innocent life. All human life is innocent. It's a stupid qualifier. So people want to say that killing the unborn is worse than killing somebody on death row. That is not true, according to Catholic teaching. It's simply not true. And so the only authentic Catholic pro-life position is a seamless garment, consistent ethic of life. John Paul II made that clear, Benedict XVI, and certainly Pope Francis has made that clear. And the fact that the leadership of the USCCB has selected one issue that they use as the litmus test to evaluate the rhetoric, not the actions, but the rhetoric. Do they check the box of saying they're anti-abortion, which Donald Trump, who to hear somebody like Abby Johnson claim that he's the most pro-life president is the is one of the most absurd things that could ever be conceived. Well, and I, I want to step back from that, which I think is a, an important way of analyzing this. And I want to take a secular lens and put this on it as well, certainly from the standpoint of constitutionality, from the standpoint of rule of law, from the standpoint of the things that, if we look in the catechism, are put forward as important things for Catholics to support. So the the fact that Trump has not agreed to a peaceful transfer of power. He's agreed to an orderly transfer of power using his words from from yesterday, but he hasn't agreed to a peaceful transfer of power. The incitement on January 6th shows that he was trying to foment a coup d'etat, and that is the way that some people in the State Department and others who have not gone on record but have been attributed in various ways have have discussed it. The military certainly has said it about that as well. I think Vox.com did an, an article about that. The, but the other piece of this is... If you watch some of the video from the siege on the Capitol, you see American flags being torn down and Trump flags being put up and or Confederate flags being on full display there. That's not a mark of people who are coming in with an ideal of patriotism or wanting to keep the rule of law and the Constitution in place. Those are people that want to overthrow those ideals and the symbols of those ideals by literally trashing them, by literally tearing them down, by literally stomping on them. And from the level of actual threat, it was an actual threat. From the level also of, if you think of a kind of visual rampage, it created a, a very visual scene of how tenuous, that's the word I want to use, just how tenuous these systems that we have in place right now are. Our democracy seems to be in a very fragile state at the moment. And I am, I've been very frustrated with the not just the religious leaders, but also the civic leaders, particularly at the federal level, for speaking with such even tones about this. I'd actually like to hear a lot more shouting at this point and a lot more anger about what happened. The photos of the people who were cowering in fear of their lives at that moment in the rotunda and in the well of the Senate, they were fearful that they were going to be killed. And as Dan has said, and as, as Heidi has said, those fears are not unfounded given the audio and other evidence that we have. And so th there's a lot here. There's just a lot here to talk about. Yeah, I would say yeah, we have to use the language of insurrection, of domestic terrorism, even of coup. And we've been using it in our writing and in our headlines. I do think to get back to what you were saying, Dan, about the bishops and the exclusively looking at the abortion issue, it's not just the bishops. So that's important because they are our official leaders in that way. But it's also been uh, Catholic media, especially EWTN and its assorted affiliates, and a number of rogue 
kind of leaders who have emerged on social media, individual priests, other leaders within the pro-life movement, Father Pavone. But what's striking to me and somewhat both scary and thinking that needs to be addressed is how much that really resonated with a huge portion of American Catholics who, you know, if 50% of Catholics voted for Trump, predominantly white middle-class Catholics, and many of them ostensibly for abortion, although I think abortion functions as a a thing that stands for all kinds of other things, our way of life, quote unquote, being under attack, which really has more to do with race and class and other things, then we have a lot of work to do because you can do that, but you cannot do that in the name of Catholicism or Christianity. Well, and that's where my that's where my major critique against the bishops comes from. And again, when I say bishops collectively, the USCCB, yes, they are not solely responsible in terms of the kind of fueling the fire, as it were. But they have a canonical, they have an episcopal, they have a theological, they have a pastoral responsibility by virtue of their office. They are imperfect men like we all are. However, they have a distinct responsibility, and it is just like Trump failing to fulfill his oath of office. These bishops who who play these games whitewash their political views under the guise of abortion, which is what I hear you saying, Heidi, and I agree with this, that this is – it's a post-factum justification for a political – sectarian worldview. And, and as long as one party checks the abortion box, then they're, they're good to go and they don't hold anything else to question. That's not the Catholic approach to government. The Catholic Church teaches that the only purpose of the government is to protect and promote the common good, right? It's, it's an elective representative body in a free democracy formed in the United States context as a federal republic to do exactly that. And it is not to implement a Catholic theological or ideological worldview like some of these bishops and these individuals that you're describing wish. That's not what Catholic politics or Catholic theology or Catholic moral ethics suggests. To this point about using it as a shield, and I think that's what I'm most upset about. It's not that it's not an important issue. It is, but it's one among many. And the fact that it's a, I would call it, I I would dare call it an easy issue. It's easy to be against, as they, as their rhetoric is oftentimes portrayed, quote, killing babies. It's a lot harder to be against executing convicted criminals on death row or to, to address racial injustice in our society or to, e- income inequality or war and torture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because it just simply is rhetorically. So it's an easy thing to hide behind, and it, I believe it's used almost exclusively as a shield for very insidious, at least in its consequences, political worldviews. And you're right, Heidi, I agree with you 100% in that there's nothing Catholic about that. And this is something I would add, and I think this is something that some of the reporting and some of the opinion that has been published by NCR and other outlets have suggested, which is the USCCB needs to return to a, a charitable but just understanding of fraternal correction. Because they need to hold each other accountable in a fraternal sense as brothers in the communion in the College of Bishops, because this kind of stuff is out of control. And it's and it's leading to this sort of thing. Crack down on these sorts of things or suffer you know, the consequences of your culpability. Talk about material cooperation with evil. Cardinal Dolan has cooperated with evil. Bishop Strickland has cooperated with evil gravely publicly, and persistently. 
Yep. And and can I just say on the topic of the common good, I hope that's where we're going to go with a new administration, a Biden administration, which will not be perfect, will not be perfectly aligned with Catholic values. But given his Catholic background and plug here for the NCR series of writers who are giving advice to Biden, all grounded in the common good about various issues throughout the month of January to take him into the first hundred days. I'm trying to remain hopeful about that. And, and what do we do about the silence? We need to talk about that, too, because there hasn't been, I know there's sometimes not a whole lot to say, but I think it's notable that folks who have been so uh, supportive of Donald Trump and these policies and these far right wing platforms and figureheads and, and perspectives like the two bishops I mentioned a moment ago, they've remained silent in the wake of this. Yeah, I, I don't understand I have said on social media and I've said here on the podcast that one of the things that I understand the obligation is for a faithful Catholic is you pay attention to your bishop. So your local bishop is the visible head of the church, and that is where the authority structure lies. One of the things that we're seeing now both on traditional media and social media is that a lot of these bishops that have just been named have a lot of influence beyond their particular dioceses, beyond their particular normal canonical fields of influence. That's one thing that I think needs to be named and talked about. The undue influence of a bishop in Texas over decisions that are made here in Chicago, for example, or the fact that what we see now is a lot of people who want to be visibly traditional as sort of bishop shopping, and they don't like what their particular local bishop says, and so they go and they find online the most hardcore traditional right-wing bishop they can find and say, this one is speaking the truth. That's a problem that needs to be named and talked about and is contributing to these other pieces that we're seeing. In addition to the dereliction of the duties of bishops and the material cooperation with evil that you've talked about, Dan, we also have a problem of catechesis. We have a problem of Catholics really understanding how authority works in the church and who isn't Catholic. And uh, recently on social media, I, I picked up one of those tweets that circulates around and around where somebody says, Joe Biden isn't Catholic. And I, I lifted that tweet up and I said, anyone who says this is neither in the position nor has the authority to actually make this statement, because the people who are in the position and with the authority to make this statement can't and won't make the statement this unilaterally. You can't do it canonically. And so all of these things are important pieces for our listeners to to realize is that we're in a struggle right now, not just for the soul of the church, but for the very soul of how knowledge works <laughs> in our culture right now, the way in which we get information, the way in which we process information, and how we make moral and ethical decisions based on that information. All of that is part of where we're at right now. And I'm prayerful, but I'm also fearful. Given what I've seen this week, I, I have a lot of fear that it's going to get dark before we see some of the light. I am, I am of the opinion that God wins. But I also recognize that if we read the book, a lot of damage can be done on the way to God winning. <laughs> That's a down note to leave it on. So I'm wondering if anybody... I, I, think it's, I think it's an accurate one, David. Scripture, it's a good thing to turn to because there are lots of ups and downs. There are times of great desolation and disappointment, death and, and violence. I think the problem is when people proof text those passages to justify insurrection, to justify taking violent measures into their own hands or to justify ideological views that are strictly against the message of God incarnate. As Christians, we believe Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. And what did Jesus do? He didn't start a, a violent 
uprising. He, he actually quelched one right on the outset where his disciples, at least some of them, scripture tells us, wanted to defend him, quote unquote. Yeah. And I think that's the message. Christianity is a tradition of pacifism. Christianity is a tradition of nonviolence. Martin Luther King Jr. is a great prophet of Christianity. These clowns on social media and, and these domestic terrorists who are more than clowns, despite dressing up like clowns, as we've seen some, from so many of the photos, there's nothing Christian about them. Absolutely nothing. And I think that's really the place to bring this conversation home. Listeners, if you saw the images and you saw Christian flags or you saw other markers of Christianity being marched into the Capitol building in a violent fashion, all that we can say is that doesn't speak to the Christianity or the church that we know and that we are here to attest and to witness to a different truth than the one that you saw on your screens these past few days. We are praying for you, we're praying for this nation, and we're praying for the health and safety of everyone as we move through the next couple of weeks and on into the new administration. And Heidi and Dan, thanks for taking time to process some of this today. Clearly, there's a lot that we're still going to need to talk about. So listeners, please do come back. Season eight of The Francis Effect is going to start here very soon in the next couple of weeks. We're looking forward to being back with you then.